what I find is that when you get parents kind of in that unraveling season of life, it's actually really triggering as a parent because they're projecting everything of their own baggage and spiritual trauma onto their kid instead of letting their kid have their experience. Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. Got a rich conversation coming up with Sarah Swartzendruber, who you just heard from. She is the co-pastor of Cascade PDX, and so we get to learn a bit about her church and some of their postures towards the work they do, which, which I found really compelling and helpful and think that you will also. But... She's also begun these cohorts for parenting after deconstruction, like talking a bit about the path of deconstruction, about those who have sort of like gone through that and that ways that parents are reacting to the faith development of their kids because of their own experiences and their own trauma. And so we talk about some some better ways to engage. I think I think you're going to find it really helpful, the work that she's doing helpful. And then she talks a bit about like cohorts that if that's kind of the space you find yourself in, or maybe you're a church leader and you need a place to to point some folks to, that uh, that she's got some great work that we're going to point you towards. But before we get to that conversation, I realized that this is releasing the week of Ash Wednesday, the, the beginning of Lent, this 40-day period that's meant to prepare us for Easter to anticipate the significance of the resurrection and of things being made new. And one of the things that we do during Lent is we remember our own finitude. And we do that in a few different ways. We do that in the way that Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. We, we do it uh, in what we give up. I mean, one of the reasons that we let go of something during this time, one of the reasons that we give something up during this time is in order to have this tactile reminder, like even in our own bodies, of our limits. And, and I, was, I was thinking a bit about this this week because in a lot of ways this week, I've been reminded of my own finitude and my limitations. I mean, this, this past week, we saw trans kids being put at even greater risk than this group of kids who's already living within a great risk. Like, they're being put at even greater risk. We saw Russia invade Ukraine, and and we've wondered, like, like what does this mean for them? What does this mean for Ukrainians? What does this mean for Russians that we've seen, like, Russians even protesting their government, coming out in these huge masses to protest for peace? What does it mean for them? And, like, and what does it mean for the world? What does it mean for Western Europe? What, is it, what does it mean for us here? What does it mean for nuclear powers? Like, so many questions and um like so much stirring in that and and i don't know about you but every time there's something significant every time there's something heartbreaking or traumatic i feel the pressure to need to like say something and do something right away and even i feel like for me at least social media compounds that that there's the pressure to maintain your voice in a certain space or to speak out consistently because you've already spoken out about other subjects. And so to be consistent, you're going to speak up, up about these things as well. Or, or maybe you have a large following and you're seen as a leader or an authority in a space. And maybe this is one of the ways that you lead. Uh, maybe like you're not necessarily a leader on social media, but you are a leader in some 
area and like you just need to have a voice that you're like, this is one of the ways that I lead is I put something out in order to lead there. Maybe you've even been convicted that it's like out of privilege that you have the choice to say anything or not say anything. And so there's this, there's this pressure, this pressure to say something and to do something right away. And, and I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't do in those instances. I'm no social media expert, which is probably pretty obvious to most of you. I mean, you need to follow your convictions. You need to follow what it looks like for you to steward the responsibilities that you've been given. I'll just tell you this, that for me, one of the things that I've been learning, I've been learning that I don't always have to have immediate responses and I don't always know what I'm supposed to do and I don't always have to know what I'm supposed to do. And that's not, uh, sometimes I see people say things like that and it's kind of followed up with uh, like, well, God's in control. So it's almost like, so I don't have to do anything is what we're saying by that. Or like in the perspective of eternity, right? Like, have you heard? Like, no, no, no. I don't. That That's not what I'm saying. I, I actually think I'm called to do something. But there's this recognition of what my own limitations are. My own limitations in being able to immediately know what to say and being able to immediately know what to do. There, there's this priest, Father Martin Laird. He's a priest who's who's written and is known for his writing on contemplative spirituality. And I've I found his work helpful for me. And and one of the things that I found most helpful from Father Laird is that is that he says that the opposite of a contemplative life is not an active life. In other words, it's not like that there are some people who are contemplatives who go off and they live as sort of like hermits on their own, these kind of like monks that remove themselves from society. And then there's like real life where all this stuff happens and you have your choice of one or the other. And he's like, no, 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 it's not. It's not like that at all. Actually, you can approach the activity of regular life out of a sort of contemplative posture. And so he says that the opposite of a contemplative life isn't an active life. It's a reactive life. This reactive life that says that whatever the cultural noise is, whatever it is that's right in front of me at the time, like that dictates what gets my attention. Here's, here's one of the things that he wrote. He says, one of the early realizations of the life of stillness is that the opposite of the contemplative life is not the active life, but the reactive life. Highly habituated emotional styles and lifestyles that keep us constantly reacting to life like victimizing victims, ever more convinced that the videos that dominate and shape our awareness are, in fact, true. I mean... Is it any wonder that so many of us have come to think that we're election experts or policing experts and then infectious disease experts and then we've all become foreign policy experts? We're just simply reacting to whatever noise is in front of us at the time. And so what, what do we do with that? I think, I think Ash Wednesday and Lent might give us a little bit of framework for what to do, at least in this moment maybe. And so some of you on Ash Wednesday, you'll go and you'll be imparted with ashes, or maybe you'll be doing the imparting where, where a cross is made on your forehead and then the words are spoken over you from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. And it's this reminder of our finitude or a reminder of our limitations. And Lent then provides us with this time 
to look around us and lament the things that are broken all around us. It provides us with a time to sort of posture ourselves in a way where we reframe the way that we're living from living reactively to instead living centered and grounded in the midst of all of the things that we're lamenting around us. And what we begin to do is we reframe that. That's a part of what happens as we give something up is, is this reframing. And a part of what happens when we do that is we begin to anticipate and even we begin to cultivate an imagination for how things will be made new and how we might participate in that. And so Lent is this, it's like this period of, resur- of anticipation of resurrection. But it's not just about moving towards a place where we're going to remember resurrection, the resurrection of Christ that's happened. We, we remember that. And it's not just a longing for when God will make all things new that we just kind of sit around and wait for. But it's this kind of remembering and longing, this anticipation that's happening that when it happens, it breeds an imagination for how things might be made new. And it breeds an imagination in us for how we might participate in that work. And so, friends, maybe this little like sermonette, may, it might just be for me because I, I have realized like I need this reminder in the midst of all that's going on. I need a reminder of my limitations and I need a reminder to recenter myself to not live reactively, but to instead live in a kind of grounded and centered way where I can begin to cultivate the imagination for how I might participate in making all things new. And so friends, grace and peace to you this first week of Lent. All right, friends. We are joined today with Sarah Schwartzendruber. Did I get it? Ooh, you're nervous. You nailed it, though. It was I good. did. I, I was a little nervous. And Sarah, this is the first time that we're getting to connect. We talked a little bit before we got on here, but th- this is fun for me for like getting to know you a bit as, you know, all of the like tens of listeners get yeah. to all experience the us getting to know each other as well. But so you are pastoring a church up in the Portland area, Cascade PDX. Tell me a little bit. I'm so curious to hear a little bit of your story of like, how did you get into pastoring? Like, what was your journey like? How did you, you, we were talking earlier that you went to school at APU and you're like, that was my first evangelical experience. I'm curious, like, this is probably a lot of questions, but like, how, like, what was your experience of coming to faith and ending up as, as a female pastor? Yeah. So I got raised in a super religious family and we were this interesting mix where my dad was a professor. And so we had this like, university kind of energy in a family that asked a lot of questions, but also a family that like went to church every single Sunday. Like I wasn't going to have sex before I was married. Like my parents didn't drink alcohol for multiple reasons, but just, so we had this weird mix of like, kind of like rule based, I would say kind of like Christian rigidness, but also like pretty open, like big thinking. You can ask any question. So the story I always tell about my family, which I think kind of captures like how I got raised in this like denominational background is we're driving home from church. I think I'm like 12 or 11, which matters to me based on brain development and what I'm asking at that point, I think it's like a moving point, but more to come on that. So yeah, remember driving home and having this realization that no one in the car, like my mom and dad and sister, no one believed that Genesis one was a literal story. 
And like that I was like for the first time, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we don't think it's a literal seven day creation story in this family. And my dad's like, I mean, Sarah, like, what do you think? Like, I think there's science and evolution and God and, you know, but that's like the house I got raised in. So I was like this interesting mix of like very religious, but also like we can ask any question we can wrestle. Um, Yeah. So I had wanted to be an elementary teacher since I was like in kindergarten because I was super passionate about teaching other people. And I loved classroom settings. We've got a lot of teachers kind of in our families. Um, And then I had a Spanish minor because I was going to go save the world with my whiteness and my Spanish minor. So um, that was like the plan of what I thought I was going to do with my life. Meanwhile, high school, some pretty influential things happened for me um, in terms of kind of our family and my sister's mental health. And church is a really important part of that conversation. And I think I started to look around and just realize that like my youth pastor was incredible and the church was incredible, but everybody was a man. And I just started to realize like, what would it look like to have kind of female pastoral voices? And um, yeah, so you start fast forwarding. I go to APU because they had incredible worship experiences. And like my background is Presbyterian. So we did like an organ every Sunday, like a little white chapel kind of a church. And then like I walked into APU that had like incredible bands and like lights, like everything everybody critiques about evangelical experiences like blew my mind. And so I go to APU honestly because I wanted to kind of grow in my relationship with God. And I felt like this was the space to do that. Um, much my family really wanted me to go to Whitworth. Like that was heavy tension of like my dad and my mom and dad being like, have you read what they say? Like what their theology is like, do you realize what you're committing to? And I was like, it'll be fine. I can love my friends who are queer and be here. It'll be fine. But it's not fine. Like I go and it's totally stressful. Like I think by the end of college, I was super depressed because I really was confused. Like how can I be me fully, who fully loves God and fully understands like that, who I think God created me to be. And also like, I want to be in these spaces, but there's like stressful accountability language. And like, there's all these 18 year olds that have crazy theology and I've never heard any of this theology. And then they're like throwing that onto me. It, it was just like a lot happening kind of all at once. So um, in the mix of that, I, I intern, I come back home in the summer Um, And I interned at a church up in Oregon, and it wasn't the church that I grew up in, but it's a a larger non-denominational evangelical church in Portland that my youth pastor had transitioned to working at. And so um, I was always around youth ministry. I think the point is, like, I had done youth ministry forever. I just never thought that was going to be my job. And so entering my senior year of college, after interning, I just, like, start kind of, like, getting asked of, like, what would it look like to come back home after you graduate and come be like our first female youth pastor? Um, And I had literally no idea what I was signing up for, except for like, I really wanted to play capture the flag. And like, I figured I could go to camp and like, maybe I could run some great games. Like, I just like, I was so un, I just like, this was not going to be my life. And I promised my parents, like I'd come back. I would like get closer to home. I was pretty depressed. And figure my life out and then go back and be a teacher because that's what we had just paid all this money for me to go do. So all that to say, that's how I get to Oregon. That's how I become a youth pastor. Um, and it it just really took off from there. I gotta say, like it just really, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that helps kind of speed us up. Then I go to seminary and then that church literally falls apart in 
many ways. And I think I just, I learned some of the really ugly backsides of church in like really, yeah. So there's a, my boss is having a non-consensual relationship rape basically with my secretary, Mm. who's my age. And I think really wrestling with like, was he grooming me? Like, did he actually think that I was like supposed to be called to be a pastor or was actually like it just about me being this young female? And so um, I like really messed with my mind for quite some time. Um, I feel, yeah, I've done a lot of therapy. So I want to just like own it. Like I've had to do a lot of therapy through that part of the story, but kind of like in that and being in seminary and really realizing like, no, like I want to do church because like there aren't a lot of individuals that look like me or, you know, I'm not like the heady theology human. I, I'm passionate and I, I like want to study and I'm intelligent, but I'm not, that's not all who I am. I'm a people person. And so um, that's what got me into pastoring. And that's what ends up helping me start Cascade, the church we co-planted and I. So yeah, that kind of gets us to where we are. And then Kurt and I's church is like totally the opposite, right? Like Cascade started, we didn't know what it was going to be. And then like, but we're all these like very hurt little fragile beings who are like, not sure if like we want to be in church after that whole, like, yeah, because the church ends up like they fire the guy, my boss, but then he just like (laughs) picks up and moves across the water, which is 15 minutes to Vancouver, Washington, and like gets a church job there. Yeah. yeah. Which is a common story. hundred percent. Yeah. And so it just, as being the female, it just made me like lose my mind of like, and coming from denominations, I'm like, this is how denominations do things better is like, they really, my experience of being denomination is like, they're going to take you through that process. And we didn't have a lead password. I mean, there's just so many bad things. So all yeah. that Cascade starts out of a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And I didn't know what Cascade was going to be. And I didn't like being a pastor felt weird. Like, and it felt like hard to take on that identity, but to be a church planter, that's like next level. Like who does that? That's, you know, and I was 25 and like I was co-pastoring and um, newly married and it was really strange. So all I'd say, Cascade is seven years old. It's just literally the exact same age as my marriage. It's like, just turned into this like beautiful vibrant community and it's nothing of what I thought it would be it's like individuals who either like are their first stop back into church maybe their last stop before they're out it's a lot of like peace post-evangelical kind of energy or not like just like this is who church is and I'm queer and I didn't know like there was no other churches for me so that's kind of who we are and yeah yeah I like that that there that it's the first stop into church or the last stop out i like that image a lot that's really helpful i i'm so curious and we're going to get into folks that are listening sarah's doing some really great work around parenting after deconstruction and that we want to get into that but i want to hear a little bit more about cascade so i'm curious like how do you describe what like what's unique about you all how do you describe your church to folks right now yeah well that's complicated right because covid has changed sure Portland, Oregon. But um, I think what people assume with Oregon is that there's all these like really liberal churches, which is actually like the opposite of Portland. So Portland is a lot of like conservative churches that are like non-denominational. There's like a couple main ones. They're like really pushing against culture. And so like really behind on conversations with like LGBTQ and women in ministry, like 
in the last year, one of them like started allowing women to be pastors and like still aren't elder, like just that kind of energy. So I think Cascade, we, so when we leave that other church, I think what started to happen is we're looking around and we're like, okay, where do you want to go work right now in Portland? And I think the obvious kind of like hop would have been to one of those communities, but like it's a female one, that's like not really an option. And then like two, I think there was kind of this trickiness around LGBTQ and like this doesn't like it doesn't make sense to me that you can't be included in church. Um, and so then the option was like we could go denominational spaces. And to be honest, a lot of the denominational spaces didn't have this figured out. Like they were still kind of like all wrestling. And we had just come from a church that fell apart. Like we did not want to walk into another system that was falling apart. And so I think Cascade is kind of that hybridy space, right? Because churches that are non-denominational have a denomination. You just like, we're just not saying what it is. And so I think like if I described us, it would be like a community of people that probably only come like one time a month. Like we're not the every single Sunday type, which is really hard to create energy around. And also just like incredible individuals who curiosity, like our five main things would be like curiosity, diversity, advocacy, intentionality, and prayer. And so like those are those are the heartbeat of cascades like deeply love jesus deeply like want to understand what it looks like to know the divine but like also pretty confused what that looks like with this new theology and kind of like have normally shifted in some way which is funny because i'm not fully that right like i'm pretty by the book like i would go to church every sunday probably if i wasn't a pastor like i love church like it's a pretty easy place for me as a straight white woman like it's I make friends easily. Like I just, it's worked. Right. And so I think we always laugh at that. Like I'm not necessarily that. And um, yeah, in some ways I am. I think there's been some major things in my life that have kind of influenced like theology for me and conversations around God, specifically within grief and losing my dad and um, like how church doesn't know how to talk about death and how we've kind of like erased some of those conversations. So some of that I would say like has forced me into my own forms of like is my faith continuing to shift and grow but I think more so cascade is all about the journey and how can we be on this journey together and look at each other and being an intergenerational space and that's like what I'm passionate about is like I I could make friends that are my age and be around them all the time in churches or in my like little circles of life but church to me is intergenerational spaces so I want to be around the Ann Connors you know who's in her 70s and loves me dearly like I wouldn't know Anne without Cascade. So yeah, that's kind of who we are. The, there's so much there. Sarah, you have so much energy. I and do. It's you true. You do. No, it's wonderful. I love it. And I like I, I have all these thoughts that like keep stirring up different things that you kind of go on. One of the things that's interesting to me is, you know, you're a millennial. You're also like working with people in, in deconstruction processes and stuff. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me that you would also then be in like sort of those categories and the way that those categories get pinned and would also then say in the next breath that you love the church and you're like, I would, I would just keep showing up there. Like, that's fascinating to me. Do you feel like in the conversation around millennials engagement in church and the deconstruction stuff, do you feel like there is something that's actually missing about like that group of people doesn't want anything to do with the church. They want to burn it all down. They kind of want to walk away. 
do you feel like you're kind of an outlier? That was a good question. Okay, in some spaces, I feel like an outlier because I think I was, so I think because I never had, so we're going to, I assume we're going to talk about like this model of deconstruction. If we go off of Kathy Escobar's model of deconstruction as kind of the language and lens I'm looking at, you know, I think I was asked to be a critical thinker with my faith throughout my entire childhood. And so to me, I could ask any question. It wasn't outside the bounds of Christianity. Like that didn't make like it, it didn't ever force me out. So I think for a lot of my peers, why it didn't work is they got handed something that if you ask questions or if certainty was taken off the table, then it like it didn't work anymore. And so I think that's where maybe I differ from peers. Okay. But I, I would also say, and I literally just taught this in a class to like college students, is like if you don't want to go to church and like you're in spaces that won't listen to you of like why you don't want to be there, like I think our feet have voice. Millennials and like our younger generations, our feet have voices. So if you have not younger people in your churches, maybe you should start listening. Like, why do they not want to be there? What do they want to burn down? And I guess for me, that's like where, that's what I'm interested in is that bridging work of like, okay, my friends don't want to be here because of X, Y, and Z. So like either we're going to create a space that like I think gives room to X, Y, and Z or they're not going to be there. And maybe you should like look at your systems and power that are so threatened by those comments. So, you know, and not that like, not that like millennials should rule the world. Like I'm not suggesting that, but I do think that like, for me, when I listen to middle schoolers and high schoolers, that to me teaches me so much about my faith because they say something to me that I'm like, "Mm, not sure I agree with that. And then it's like, okay, but why? what's happening what's getting threatened what am i needing to like look at power wise and then like why not and like Mm. why not let them be the voice so i don't know i'm probably non-traditional in that way that's great no that's actually really helpful so push into a little bit like help us understand you talked about kathy escobar's framework for deconstruction like do you do you mind unpacking that a little bit yeah yeah so i met kathy in colorado she's another female co-pastor which is great which obviously makes me interested in her she is she wrote this book called Faith Shift. Um, and in that she presents this model of kind of how you go through these faith shifting conversations. And that really resonates for me because I just didn't have the language for what kept happening in my church. And I didn't know how to talk about it. And so I saw this model and I was like, yes, this is exactly it. So she talks all about this kind of journey where you start in the space and then you're at, you know, you start to realize like, oh, I don't know, I agree with something. But then you ultimately return back because your friends are there or works for your kids or your partner or whatever. And you kind of start going on that pattern back and forth until you kind of get to this breaking point where you start to realize like, no, why can't my queer friends be in the pew next to me? Or why aren't there women speaking or whatever? Like, why aren't there black voices in this space or whatever the thing is that's like kind of that breaking point for you? You know, I think that what happened in the United States is like COVID, George Floyd, like some of those things happened. And this is what started happening for people in church. They're like, oh, I care about this. Why doesn't my church? And so then you go on this process of like kind of start to unravel and realizing like you've got a lot of questions. Maybe how you made God be in this nice box no longer works for you till you get to that point of severing. So I think um, some people really need to remove themselves from church for a portion of time which is like the unpopular thing we say at Cascade all the time. We're like, 
hey, actually, I think like maybe you don't need to be in church for a minute. Like has a pastor ever told you it's okay to not come? Um, which is a lot of my church. Great until not, right? Because then like, how do you do anything if nobody shows up? But it's fine. Right. Yeah. And how do you have money? You're telling them not to show oh. up and to give like you're breaking all the models. Yeah. And we don't. That's more of the story. But anyways, so then you go into kind of like your separation time. And then the final part is reimagining. And um, and that's this like spiral curl up. And um, so that's what I'm passionate about. Because what I find is that people that are in deconstruction conversations is that they get really stuck in like burn it all down. Let me tell you everything that's really bad about the church, which is important, right? I think that's really important. But when we miss the reimagining, I actually think we don't actually do the full process, the full journey. And it actually kind of shorts a lot of us of like what I actually think faith is, which is an experience, a journey. It's not something that's like one and done. I'm not making a new tidy box. I'm asking critical questions and I want to reimagine my faith forever because I want to grow and change. I don't want to be the same. So all that to say. So that's kind of like the model that I started to see and look at. and. When I started to put that into cascade realm, for me as a pastor, it made me less frustrated that I kept having the same conversation with people over and over that was all about kind of everything that was wrong with church and realizing that they were just in that unraveling space, which is a lot of who my church is. And that like that was actually what I think I got called to do is come bridge kind of that conversation and listen and being a caring individual. And then um kindly nudge individuals that part of the journey is growth also and so maybe that's where they need to be today but we don't want to be there forever right so yeah Yeah. can i ask what does some of that kindly nudging look like i'm really i'm i'm really curious how you create space for people in the like like these things are terrible they suck or i've been sold a bag of goods and Mm -hmm. and then like, how do you move people or do you move people towards reimagining? Is that something you move people to? Is it something you just create vision for and space for? Like, what, no, we try what does to. that look like? Yeah, well, our whole thing is safe to be safe to grow, right? So we have to okay. be safe in this space. Can you say that again? It's safe to be safe to grow. Okay. So I feel like a follow-up statement someone would say is you can't create safety. You can't force safety, which I don't disagree with. But we're talking about like our ideals, like I have to feel safe in a space to be willing to grow in a space. So I'd say kind of the two big things that we do to nudge would be one, I'm a pastor, I'm not a therapist, and I don't try to pretend to be what I'm not. And we have like people that are specialized in spiritual trauma that we quickly refer individuals to like, hey, these actually would be the right people to talk to, not us. So that like individuals keep doing their own work in a qualified space, right? Um, But like pastorally, I think for us, it's like, you know, we have book groups that are, you know, we're trying to talk about all these issues all the time of like, how do we keep reimagining? And then I think also like we're doing this in like different realms, right? We're doing this in like pub theologies where we're talking about theological concepts, helping reimagine. And if I'm facilitating conversation, you know, I can ask enough questions like, yeah, but why? But, you know. Let's keep going, like, let's dig in farther, like, not just burn it down, right? And that's for me, too. Like, I can critique easily, but it gets tiring to critique all the time. But also, if you're there and that's what you really need to do, I can make room for you to do that. And I'm not threatened, right? Like, I'm not 
that's not too much for me. They're not too much. I, I think it's like this both and experience. So mm-hmm. I don't think we're perfect at it, but I think we're passionate about it. Maybe it's the better way to say it. So, I love that. I yeah. love that. It's really, it's really helpful. And so one of the things that's interesting that you're doing is this work around parenting after deconstruction. Yeah. And I'm super intrigued by it because one of the things that I've been encountering are a lot of folks that are trying to figure that out in different kinds of ways. You've got people who, because of the baggage that they inherited and they don't want to give that to their kids. And so they're like, I just don't do anything. I don't do any kind of like spiritual engagement with my kids at all because I don't want to give them anything. Or I'm I'm engaging with churches that same things happen with like, say their youth ministry, that their youth ministry doesn't want to recreate what the parents had. The parents are reacting against that. And so they end up having a youth ministry that has very little like sort of Christianness to it. And and there's this like, I don't want to, but the parents are showing up at church for a reason. They're they're yeah. reimagining things, but they don't want to pass yeah. on to their kids the the stuff that they had to unpack, right? So like what does that even start to look like for parents? Yeah. And is that a common experience? Is that like well, is that just me yes. projecting? Nope. Okay. You literally just listed everyone I talked to. So yes. That's it. Yeah. I mean, you you say it, I'm like, oh, this makes me so excited. I can't. So, so we plant this church, right? And when you plant a church and you start a church, it's kind of like, and when you co-pastor, it's like, okay, you do these things and I'll do these things because we're just like attempting to survive. Right. And so in that, my background is elementary education, which I said, like that was the game plan. And then I have been a youth pastor for four years. And so when we plant Cascade, I take over all student and kids everything. And so when we planted this church, we were like, you have to have really good kids and student theology. Like that's so important because adults kind of think what they're going to think. Kids and students are where you're making influence, right? And so that's what I'm interested in. And so I started looking around and basically what you know, if you've been in progressive spaces, is there's not great kids curriculum. And illustrated ministry exists now and some other like one-off things, but they didn't exist when we started. And so Basically, since day one of Cascade, I started writing our kids, like all zero to 18 theology was all me. And we run like four classrooms downstairs and we have middle school, high school youth group. So we like do the full thing. And we had to kind of start asking like the whys. And that's exactly like why it was important to do so. Because what would happen is we'd have these parents coming to church and they'd say like, I think I want to be here. I have no idea what to do with my kid. And so they would do the, what I call the you do you theology, which is just like a free for all. And like would then their kid would be downstairs and we would have a gen one, right? A creation story lesson. And they would be incredibly stressed out. They would come back to me and be like, oh my gosh, why would you teach that? Like I trusted you and like you taught my kid this gen one story. And so what I started to realize was like, just because this is something I've studied and I'm crazy passionate about it does not mean that like parents have kind of the language around brain development and why we're doing what we're doing. So there's, I think like one method of thought that progressive church is doing where like nuancing kind of every step of the way. And I don't like, I'm not interested in criticizing other versions, I guess, of how people are doing things, but I think that's just kind of one of the models and cascade our whole model is how do you ask kids to be critical thinkers every step of the way? So curiosity is one of our core values. And so I'm asking kids for appropriate brain developmental levels, right? That like kindergartner, like 
under seven, kind of those ranges, if I begin to teach them a nuanced story, like they're concrete thinkers, they cannot hear a nuanced story, right? That being said, using that same level of like Piaget and what we know about kids' brain development, we also know that kids before they're 13 hold better nuance than any adult, right? So I can teach a story like a literal Genesis story. I can engage kids by saying, using your skill of curiosity, what are some questions you have about the story? So I'm teaching it in kind of this traditional way. I'm not using scary words and I am tweaking language all the time. So I'm saying things like in the story or like I'm giving permission that if you're listening to my words, I don't believe it's a literal story. And like you can kind of hear that come out, but I'm also not creating fundamental progressives. And that to me is so essential is that I want kids to learn how to be a critical thinker. I don't need them to think like I think, right? And so I think- Can I ask, what would that look like if if it was being approached from a fundamentalist progressive point of view? Well, I think it would be like, it has to be this. Like, it's like, it becomes like the same, like black and white thinking, but it's like, oh, it has to be nuanced or like, there's no way God could be even in the conversation. Like it has to be evolution or- Does that make sense? Kind of like that, like swing that starts to happen. and. What I find is that when you get parents kind of in that unraveling season of life, it's actually really triggering as a parent because they're projecting everything of their own baggage and spiritual trauma onto their kid instead of letting their kid have their experience. And so, yeah, that's the class. I mean, we just, we had, there's so much to say, but yes, there's there's so much. I know. I think like there's so much research behind this. Like there's so much, I think that's critical. Yeah, so I think it's not necessarily, like, I'm not reading a literal kid's Bible a lot of the time. I'm telling the story because there aren't a lot of great kid's Bible. But as we both know, Book of Belonging is coming out in the next couple of years. And that's going to be a great kid's Bible to read, right? It's going to be great. But we got to wait, like, another, like, year and a half or something. It was, like, 10. But whatever. But, yeah, so I think, like, um, kind of finding the resources and then just really engaging curiosity. And then we do it, right, like, in ways that we want kids to engage with their brains, but also having fun. Like, it's not like, it's very probably like Montessori-esque, right? Like we're doing lots of levels of engagement. So it's not just my auditory learner. But yeah, I don't know where, how we got here. But yes, that's kind of like how you talk to kids and think about like deconstruction. But then I think kind of the first step and what our cohort does is it really says like, where are you at in your journey? Like, let's acknowledge where you are. Let's put you where you are on this uh, like kind of on the little di- literal diagram, like where are you at with deconstruction? Yes, that word is triggering and means a lot, but like let's identify where you think you might even be and take some space for that. And maybe permission for the first time to say that you are in an unraveling place and that's okay. But that's really threatening. If you've been told your whole life, like I have to think this way and I can't unravel, um, that's often threatening in relationships and mir- there's just so many levels because I want to do that work before we talk about kids so that we can think about why is that triggering me? What, you know, what happens for me? And then I think it's like, yes, let's talk about how to nuance theology and own that our kids have been given really like white, you know, kind of poor theology over time. Like let's own all the things about Christianity that's crummy, right? Like this nationalistic like energy So we can hybrid. We can talk about, you know, environmentalism when I'm talking about Genesis. Like I can actually focus on the earth 
and how we take care of the earth. But I'm still going to teach the story to those young concrete brains because of brain development and like what's appropriate for them. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I I keep having you, you genuinely have so much that you say, like so many layers of things in what you're saying that it, it like raises so many questions for me. But <laughs> oh, sorry. No, it's wonderful. I actually really appreciate it. One of the things that that I immediately began thinking about is so you're able to do this in your church space so that there's a different kind of thing. I'm thinking about parents that are in spaces that are much more evangelical, yeah, where their kids are sitting through a curriculum or something where they come home and they're like, "What do I do with this? Do I like just stop having my kid go to that and i'm I'm gonna be uh, and I'm just gonna talk to them about those things. Do I have them go to that and we debrief it? Yeah. How does, or or even like my kids are older and they're in youth group yeah. and they're going to this youth group because their friends are there <laughs> and I'm not stoked on all of what's happening yeah. there, but like they're choosing that and I'm stoked that they're choosing that. But like, yeah. how, what, so, so like, what do you do with your kids are in this, a, a different space than where you are? So it's not necessarily that you're being triggered because you're at this great church that's thoughtful and is creating curiosity for your kids. And you're like, oh, what are you doing? But instead it's like, I actually am in this different place. And, but what my kids are, they're getting something like, how do I make sense of that? What do I do with that? Yeah. So the cohort, the whole goal, goal of the cohort after you've identified is then to empower parents. It's to me, it's saying like, look, I get, I get why church is problematic. Like I'm a part of the system because I'm a white straight female pastor and I want to like own that. Um, but I also want to like reimagine something different, which is why I'm still in church. And I don't want to, I think some of that millennial, like, I'm sick of complaining about it. So I'm going to go do something and start something different. Um, but that being said, right, like in our cohorts, what I keep hearing is exactly what you're saying, which is like, you know, I am in that conservative evangelical space. What now? Um, and so I guess my whole thought is like, look, church gets your kid for like an hour a week and you are a parent seven days a week all the time. And I um, acknowledge that it's really hard to parent, but I actually think that conversations around God and kind of shifting some theology, or maybe even if you haven't done any spiritual conversations at home and your kids are like late high school, college or whatever, that you can kind of go back and kind of start some of those conversations in kind of simple ways. And so I guess that's what I'm passionate about because I don't necessarily think church is going to be what a lot of my peers are going to do moving forward, which means spiritual development needs to be something that parents feel capable of. So, um, in my Parenting After Deconstruction Instagram, I'm trying to put and pump like theology 101 out there of like, hey, I went to seminary and these are some of the simple things they tell you that can help you guide where you want to land and maybe they could shape conversations at home. So um, like I want to think about God at home and I want to pray, but like, dear Jesus, like that prayer isn't working for me anymore. So I guess for me, reimagining would be like, could you take a walk with your kid and notice creation and somewhere in that conversation, talk about the divine and think about like the tree and kind of this interconnectedness of life and, you know, the weather and some of those simple conversations that sound so silly. Um, but I really deeply believe like our lives are spiritual and theological. It's just like, do you want to notice it with your kid or not? And so I think to me, while I could not go to those churches anymore because I, my theology is just not there and I get ragey and probably would sound really critical or, you know, I just, I can't, you know, my husband would kill me on the drive home. I'd be just like, bah. but 
That being said, like if you're in that space, I don't think that's bad or wrong. I think we need to really remove some of that shame language. And I think those that have maybe like deconstructed or more progressive spaces, we're really good at being really shaming to those of you that are stuck in the system. And instead, I guess my statement back would be, okay, how are you empowering your kid at home? How can yeah. you reinstate some conversations and ask maybe the critical thinking questions that aren't happening in those spaces? Um, you know, like, did Jesus need to die on the cross? Oh, like that's, you know, that's it. Middle school and high schoolers love, love to poke questions. Just let them do it. You know, like they want to burn it down. Let them try. I think it's a good conversation, you know? Yeah. I've been shocked at because I was originally a youth pastor also, and my mm -hmm. kids are teenagers now. And I will be shocked at when we are talking about something that they're learning in the church space. And I'll just ask them like the simple question of like, well, what do you think about that? Yeah. And how much, like how much critical thinking they do have around it, how much they're like, oh yeah, I don't buy that at all. Yes. And I was like, gosh, did I waste my life as a youth pastor <laughs> thinking all these kids were like, that I was so masterfully teaching them and that they're going home and they're like, that guy's full of BS. Like, <laughs> but, right, but they're critically thinking. And so yes. to me, that's like, that's the win. Because we see like that 12 year old start shifting, right? What we know about brain development they no longer actually hold things as nuanced. This is the tricky part about that brain. They okay. can critically think, but they can't nuance in the same way. So they're going to choose who their friends are, right? And they're going to like stick with their click is like the way I think about this. So, right, like a younger kid will include anyone because like you're in the space. So do you want to play with me kind of an attitude? This is where we start to shift away from that thinking. And it's like this weird mix of like, I can't nuance theology but also I'm like a better critical thinker than I've ever been. And so I feel like you have to hybrid that and almost meet them in that like that energy of like you see some weird hypocritical things in the Bible. Let's list them. Why is like Matthew and Mark? What's different? You know, like what are different about the Gospels? What do we see? I think that's where you start to like get those students to like Venn diagram and actually point out the problems. They love that stuff. And it's great. They're still engaging with me. That's a win. They'll remember yeah. it. So, okay. So I get the critical thinking piece. Now I'm kind of curious about, I'm thinking about, you're talking about your church being intergenerational, like that you need these different kinds of people. The only reason that you be in relationship with them is because yeah. of the church, which I think is like wonderful and beautiful. One of my visions for the church has always been Galatians 3, neither Jew nor Gentile, that it's like, this is the place where like you are forced to be in community with people who you wouldn't necessarily choose otherwise. Yeah. And because we have this, this common table, I, I am seeing that be really, when I think about like teenagers is probably mm -hmm. like the frame of reference. That's easiest to think of this. I'm seeing that be incredibly difficult there because it feels like there is a bit of an exclusion that's there. And mm -hmm. when you start moving into like, okay, some critical thinking, things like that, like I'm not going to be with them because they're homophobic. So mm -hmm. like, like we'll go to camp together, but they're not going to be in my cabin and I'm going to mm -hmm. go over here or like, or like they've got a Trump flag outside of their house. They are bigoted a-holes. I will like, mm -hmm. I'm going to whatever, yell at them. Mm -hmm. And like, how are we building the capacity or can you at teenage years build the capacity to live around a wider table? Mm -hmm. Should we be trying to do that? Like, what? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think two things, right? I think, I think number one, so my leaning, my first gut leaning would be, um, 
you know, there's a lot of spaces and churches for those that identify um, what I would say in more um, unsafe circles. Um, so to me, like, there's a lot of room for, um, I mean, these are blanket statements. So I want to be really sure. careful. Yeah. Like for like that Republican bigoted, like that kind of like that strong right leaning energy of like, you can't be queer. There's a lot of churches that like allow those spaces. So I guess on one side, I would say, um, me personally, I'm interested in creating safe spaces. This younger generation, they are not, they're not going to like let us do that. They're like, they're like, this is kind of like a little bit, I think like start with like, this is the way, you know, like the, like this is where we're going. And if you want to come with us, great, but like, we're not going to do some of the exclusion that like the previous generations have done. Like I've heard, had high school say, high schoolers say to me, Sarah, you're millennial. Like you guys are the worst. I'm like, oh, love you so much. Right. But so I think like, I think there's that, right. Of like, how do we create actually safe spaces, knowing that there's a lot of spaces, safe spaces for that other model. And then, but I hear what you're saying, which is like, okay, but actually there's this backwards kind of energy, right. That creates, again, fundamental progressives that says yeah. like, if you don't a new think kind of exclusion, hundred percent, it's just the same thing, but a little bit differently packaged. Um, and so I'll, to be honest in, in my church, uh, that's like my church energy. A lot of my high schoolers, like they are inclusive and like, they do want to elevate like people of color's voices. And like, like it is a very different energy. <clears throat> and so we're doing what you're talking about. Like we're like, our messages are not about how can you be more inclusive because they are teaching me how to be inclusive, right? They're defining new phrases and terms for me literally every day. We're doing the work of like, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? And like, do you want to have a relationship with Jesus, even though it looks like this? And when you have a relationship with Jesus, that actually looks like loving your neighbor, like loving self, loving God, loving others. That's like the thing I say to them all the time. And so it's actually doing a little bit of that. I think what sounds more fundamental conservative language like that relationship language and if I love Jesus and if or the divine or whatever we want to call it because I I could care less what the title is that we're calling like creator being um if I actually love God and I'm committed to that lifestyle I think it changes how you live and we talk about that all the time so to me that means that like I'm not going to yell at that person and I'm not going to cuss them out even though I think they're doing destructive things. That doesn't mean I'm encouraging like destructive relationships in terms of like I'm never saying like I don't think you should be in a relationship with an abuser, right? If you're not in a safe situation, sure. you should not be there. But I think more so what we're talking about is like how do you love your neighbor? And I, I think that's critical and is the only thing that's going to move us forward. So yeah. Yeah, I think for me, a piece of it is, as I think about like my kids, for instance, I think I th one of the things that I think about for them is like, what does it look like to help them see the divine in other people to give yeah. dignity to other people? Yeah. And the hardest people to do that with are the people who you disagree with the most yep. and who can who may be trying to cause you the most harm. Yeah. And like how. It, so I think that's one of the things as I think about my teenage kids, that's one of the things that I would say is at the forefront of my mind is constantly like, how am I helping them to see the dignity, the Imago Dei, the the yep. beauty that that maybe is underneath a bunch of stuff, but is there in in people that that they that for them are an other. Totally. But you have to do your self work to get there. Right. Yeah. Like 
you have to not be threatened and triggered by those conversations and spaces, I think. I mean, to the best of your ability to present as your fullest and truest self to be able to even ask that question of your kids. Because if you haven't done that journey, I don't think the awareness is even there because you're just reacting against like, no, that hurt me, that hurt me. Yeah. Uh, So that's why I think that initial part of this cohort is essential. Like you need to know that a bunch of people in the United States right now are having the same conversations you want to have, right? Like for those of us that feel like I'm the only one or no one else in my church is asking these questions, like there's a lot of people asking these questions. Number two, I think then it's like, okay, now how am I going to even like acknowledge that I can do my own work here? And then I think this is just the beginning, right, of like wanting to grow to be our best selves and continue to be who God created us to be, you know? And then I think what you're hitting on the third part is like, okay, now how do I actually go do this with my kids and not create this fundamental progressive that it's like very like this is what the way and this is it, you know, and just packaging a little different. And to me, like you're doing that with your kids if you invite them to something different, like that fourth way, which is like that critical thinker. Like we can be in situations, we can bridge some of these conversations. People are good. Like, I don't think people are bad. I think people are mostly good. So like, how can we see God in individuals and talk about as a family? I mean, yeah, to me, that's like the best. Cause like we have to teach our kids how to do that. And I have to be able to be in those positions too, you know? And like deepest hope is that one day my daughter can be around other individuals I mean, I hope that like people aren't talking about how women can't be pastors in like that point in time, because that seems like, I don't know, 100 years old. But uh, if she is, I hope that she can just be like, you know what? My mom created me to be brave and strong. And like, I love that you don't think that like she can be like, I just hope she can bridge that language. To me, that would be like the deepest compliment of a parent. Like she's okay with who she is and what she believes and know that God's present in that. But also she can be in any space and be confident in who she is, too. Yeah, if she's secure enough to be able to do that. 100%. It's, a really... it's, it's like attachment theory, right? Which is like a whole nother piece of this. Crispin Mayfield, everybody read his book. It's coming out soon. Oh, yeah. They're they're up in your neck of the woods, huh? They're at our church. Yeah. Christian's they're great. They're at your church. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've got this you've got this Instagram account, you were saying, yeah. that's and it's yeah, parenting, parenting after deconstruction? Yeah. It's a mouthful, just like my last name. Yep. Yeah, so I made this Instagram mostly because I didn't want my name. Like, I just never wanted my name associated to anything. And so then I was like, if I just hide behind this Instagram, maybe it'll work. And it turns out people need to know who you are to believe that you're worth listening to. So, yeah, that's the Instagram I mostly try to hide. But, yeah. And then we have a parenting cohort. Yes, please. We've done a fall cohort. We've done um, a winter cohort. Both had about 30-something people go through it. And then um, we're going to do a spring cohort which is in April. So we have a Sunday option and a Tuesday option. Um, yeah. And what these- is it like? What's the cohort look like? Yeah. So it's four weeks. We're changing it. We were doing one hour and we're moving it to an hour and a half to allow for more discussion. So you'll be, we'll do some of this. Like I'll give you some content and then you'll be put into a smaller group of three or four people that hopefully you get to know and journey with over the four weeks. And we're really trying to learn from one another because I I don't have the answers. I'm not like, this is not solved or figured out for me. I have a lot of research and I just want to put it into your mind and start the conversation. And then um, those of you who have been parents much longer than me, go figure out the answers together. So yeah, that's kind of the goal of the cohort um, model. Yeah. I love that. So where do people find out about that? Obviously on your Instagram, is there somewhere else? 
There's also parentingafterdeconstruction.com. All the sign-up information is on there. Okay. Parenting After Deconstruction on the Instagram, parentingafterdeconstruction.com. I mean, you're not using your name, but you're at least consistent. I am. So it's really what I want to call is reimagine parenting after deconstruction, but that's way too much. So sometimes I just shorten it to be reimagine. Yeah. You know how it is. So yeah. <laughs> Sarah, where, uh, are there other places people can find you? Where do they find your church? Where do they pay attention to other stuff that you're doing? Yeah. So, well, so Cascade Church PDX is a church that I co-pastor in Portland, Oregon. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, literally everywhere. I think on Twitter, someone else runs it. I'm not good at the whole Twitter thing. Maybe sure. the other one. Yeah, there's some other like things that might be coming with, yeah, trying to think about how to get curriculum into people's hands. Like if you want to do this model, but nothing to report on today. So Okay. Okay. Good. Well, I'm really grateful for you. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, the, the energy that you bring to all of this, the thoughtfulness that you bring to all of this. And I'm really glad to get to know you some. And I hope that this is the start of a friendship for us. Oh, thanks, Mike.